The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church Pulpit Series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. I want to start this morning by asking you a question. The question is, what is your perception of Jesus? What image comes to mind when you think of Jesus? Uh, around Christmas time, uh, I guess, uh, you know, people have nativity scenes in their houses and a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, a lot of people have this idea of, of Jesus as this warm, cuddly baby. And uh, this idealized picture of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. And, 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 and most people don't, don't have a problem singing about this Jesus, celebrating Jesus, uh, you know, uh, going to carol services. And, and kind of being a part of the festive season. But I think part of it is because this is their image of Jesus and they don't have a problem with this Jesus. Oh, I wonder maybe whether you have other ideas of Jesus. I've just got some other images that some of these are quite, you know, familiar. You know, the, the saintly Jesus in the garden with the halo around the head and just praying for you, praying for me. And that's just such a wonderful picture. You know, I used to have, you know, one of these in, in my family home at some point, I remember, the praying Jesus. Or maybe it's this, you know, the hippie Jesus. You know, he loves everyone, loves kids. You know, doves descend on him and, you know, all these kind of wonderful images of Jesus playing with children and, you know, just this all-round nice guy walking around telling people to do good and to live in peace. And it's almost like he was scattering daisies as he went along, you know. That's the kind of image, you know, people have sometimes of Jesus. Or maybe it's this one, you know, the, the Jesus is a friend of animals, you know, caring and compassionate and loving and gentle. And, and you know, there's truth, you know, with all of these different images. But I wonder if that's as far as we go with Jesus. And if so, then I want to suggest to you very humbly, very gently, that it's a very, very limited image of Jesus. And, you know, we're continuing our series, Jesus More Than a Baby, because this Christmas, we, we really want to engage with Jesus as he revealed himself in the Bible, as he revealed himself to us. And with the aim and our hope and our prayer is that the more we enlarge this perception of Jesus, the more we get a broader picture of Jesus, the more we will want to follow him and, and love him and be devoted to him because we see him in, in richness and fullness. This morning, I want to engage with the topic, Jesus the Judge. Jesus the Judge. And this is probably one of the most difficult conceptions of Jesus. And many people would struggle with this idea of Jesus as the judge. And, and to be honest, you know, most people would find this as an obstacle to really believing and trusting and following Jesus. This idea of Jesus being the judge. You know, this whole notion of God and judgment and the wrath of God and God as judge really bothers people. They really struggle with this concept. And it's understandable. One reason for that is because of all the hellfire and brimstone preaching that is you know, expressed in some corners of the church. And often it's communicated um, with a sense of self-righteousness or hypocrisy or judgmentalism. It's communicated with almost a smile. We're the in crowd and God's going to get you. And people have this aversion to, to God as judge because of that. 
there's no love, there's no compassion, there's no grace, there's not a, a tear in the eye when it's communicated, but an arrogance. But I think if we we're really honest, there's more going on with this. And to be honest, I think it's, it's that we just don't like the idea of God being a judge. We would much rather a God that just loved us that just approved of most of the things we did. The, the, the idea and the concept that we have to give an account to him and, and that probably, for the most part, he's displeased with how we live bothers us. It's not that we have a problem with justice per se, uh, really, particularly now in our culture. Justice is the buzzword Everyone is on about justice. All you've got to do is turn on the news and see a court case unfolding and the two families coming out, right? The families of the perpetrator and the families of the victim. Neither of them are happy. Either because the judge gave too hard a sentence and the family of the accused is like, that's just so unfair. Or if the judge was too lenient, then the family of the victim is crying injustice. We're passionate about this idea of justice. So justice per se is really not the issue. I think we all long for justice, for things to be right in the world. The problem is that we don't like being in the box. We don't like the idea that somehow we're the perpetrators, we're the offenders, we, because we think very highly of ourselves. We think we're not like those criminals that are coming out of the court. I, I don't deserve to be judged because I'm a good person. That's our problem. See, we, we, we think that when God looks at our lives, He should approve of most things, that God would not have too many things about our lives that really would irk Him or bother Him. And so this idea that He would judge me offends us, confronts us. And again, some people, when they read the Bible, they, they kind of find these images of God, particularly in the Old Testament, this kind of angry, mean God that wipes people out. Now, when it comes to Jesus, people are quite happy to kind of separate those two gods and go, oh, that's the God of the Old Testament. But the Jesus of the New Testament, we like him. He's more like the hippie Jesus. He's everybody's friend. He's, you know, throwing daisies around. He, but I, I, I hate to ruin your Christmas cheer. But that is not how Jesus is portrayed in the Bible. I'll cite you one example, Revelation 19. And this is probably one of the most confronting images of Jesus. Verse 11 says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I don't know how that passage strikes you. But this is the same Jesus that was born in the manger. No different. But we struggle 
because I think our minds wrestle with this perception of Jesus. We prefer the hippie Jesus. So I want to try this morning to help you manage this tension and kind of understand some things that maybe will help you put this Jesus into the context of a much bigger picture of God's plan and purpose for us. And I want to take you kind of as an overview to the Bible very quickly to share with you some things that will hopefully cause you not to be repelled from this Jesus, but with understanding, be attracted and drawn to this Jesus. The first thing that I think we need to keep in mind is that God's justice is always, always, always talked about within the context of his love. And that's really important to keep in mind. See, in our modern Western culture, in our minds, we, we find that a paradox that love and justice can exist side by side. Yet, it, it ought not to because our parenting experience will tell us that this is possible. When you discipline your children, that's an act of judgment. But I don't think any parent would think that they're being evil or mean or capricious when they do that. So why do we think that God is like that? You know, I remember, you know, you know my parents said this, and I've said it, and probably every parent has said this, when you're about to discipline your child, you say something profoundly wise like, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I've kind of always wondered, what on earth was that about? I've kind of said it, not really fully understanding it, but I think I've kind of got what that's getting at. When, you, when you're about to discipline your child and they look at you and in their eyes is a look that does not see your love and they just see you as a mean parent, I think that's what hurts the most because you see in their eyes that they've misunderstood your love. And I think that's what happens in our culture sometimes. We, we can't reconcile God's love and justice. And I think what wounds the heart of God the most is when we look at him and we just see a capricious, mean, evil God. You see, we go through the Bible and, and God's justice is provoked by deep compassion and love for people. One of the earliest instances this comes out is in the Exodus narrative with the children of Israel. It says that they were crying out and crying out, no, not that passage, crying out and crying out for deliverance and rescue and salvation from the Egyptians. And it says that God was moved with compassion to rescue them. And so judgment comes on Egypt, the oppressors, but it was because of God's love for Israel. And lest we think that Israel were the favorite child or the chosen one, they were that. But God is compassionate and loving to all people. Ezekiel 22, this is a prophet speaking now to Israel. And listen to what God says here. Her officials, speaking of Israel, within her are like wolves tearing their prey. They shed blood and kill people to make unjust gain. Her prophets, they whitewash these deeds for them by false visions and lying divinations. They say, this is what the sovereign Lord says when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land, they practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and the needy and mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. Now, we would agree with all of that and go, something needs to be done about that to make it right. And it continues. I look for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. So I will pour out my wrath on them. You see, God is provoked, if you like, 
by injustice and oppression and wrongdoing. And it's his love for the victims that brings about his judgment. Because he cares deeply. You know, one of the most frequently used words in the Bible is hesed, which means steadfast, totally committed love. It's the single most common word that kind of appears over and over when God talks about the kind of love he has for people. It remains steadfast. And all of that is within the context of God acting in righteousness. The second thing I want to share with you is that God's agent of judgment is Jesus the Savior. And again, this is profound you know, in many other world religions, God is, is capricious and he is mean and he is evil. But we've seen that the God of the Bible is not that. Another thing that often comes out in different world religions is that God is distant and removed and he pours out judgment in absolute lack of connection, if you like. But the God of the Bible is not like that. He steps in to human history. He experiences injustice and pain firsthand through Jesus. You see, last week we looked at Jesus the Messiah and this hope that Israel had that this king, this eternal king, who was much more than a human figure, would come. And one of his roles was to right every wrong and to make everything right and to usher us in to a new world order, the hope of a new day when every wrong would be made right. And in Isaiah 11, which was the passage we looked at last week, part of that has this promise. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, even though he could do that because he walked among us. But he will judge with righteousness. And who will he judge? He will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. And the God of the Bible is not distant and disconnected. He comes in human form. He takes on flesh and he experiences the very thing that he's committed to judging. Injustice, violence, hatred. And so we see the New Testament writers, they pick up this idea and say, this person, this Messiah, he is Jesus. The judge is Jesus. And so we see in Acts 10, Peter says that he commanded us, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. He's the one. It's the same one. And in Romans chapter 2, Paul says this, this will take place on the day, on the day, and this is in the context of Paul talking about all the human culpability of our sinfulness and our rebellion. He says, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. It's Jesus. He's the same one. He's the one that God has entrusted judgment to. The one who became human. The one who was born in a manger. The one who walked among us and experienced things firsthand. It's that Jesus that will be our judge. Unless we fall into the trap of thinking, oh, these were just, you know, Jesus' followers getting carried away with themselves and getting over-enthusiastic. They, they got this idea from Jesus himself. Here's one passage in John chapter 5. Jesus couldn't be clearer, and I've given you some other cross-references. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. 
And he has given him authority, here it is, to judge because he is the Son of Man. It's by virtue of Jesus' incarnation that he's been entrusted the authority to judge. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus is God's agent of judgment. And the thing is, thirdly, and this is challenging but comforting at the same time, that Jesus is still passionately against oppression and injustice. Passionately. See, the thing is, the God of the Bible is a God who cares deeply for people. And he cares when they're oppressed. And he cares when, when they're, they're taken advantage of and they're brought into slavery and they're bound. He, he cares when they're violated and are abused. He cares deeply. That is why he is provoked and moved and, and stirred to act in judgment. And we see Jesus in, 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 in the Gospels even though his teaching was so radical, in Matthew 25, one of his most profound parables, he told this story that illustrates what judgment will be like. And he talked about uh, these sheep and these goats. And it says in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. This is Jesus talking about himself. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another. That's judgment as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And the criteria of that judgment was how we treated the most disadvantaged, the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the imprisoned. And Jesus makes this profound statement that how we treat them is how we've treated the defender of them, the king who represents them. And so those who did show mercy and did feed and did provide uh, water and, and did visit and did care. It, it's like they did it to Jesus and Jesus welcomes them and says, come in and enjoy my kingdom. And those who didn't, they neglected, they extorted, they violated, they self-indulged, they did not care, are told to depart from Jesus. This ought to challenge us in the West, confront us that people the oppressed, the marginalized, the widows, the orphans, the poor still matter very, very much to Jesus. And for us in our culture, that should help us put into context this idea of Jesus' judgment. Because we're passionate about that, more so now than ever before, about doing charity and about doing right and about speaking up for the oppressed and the marginalized. Well, Jesus champions that cause. But see, the, the confronting part, and this is the bit that puts us in the, in the dock, as it were, is that we, we have so much. And, when, and many studies show that the wealthier people are, the less they give to charity. And I, uh, some of these uh, our sermons, uh, I want to you know, say, have been based from a book by uh, John Dixon called The Skeptic's Guide to Jesus. So I want to give credit to John for some of this stuff. Brilliant, very intelligent, godly man. 
And he put this statistic in the book that just confronted and challenged me. And this is from the ABS, 2010, household expenditure. Every year, households spend about $568 on their pets, about $1,600 on alcohol, about $2,700 on annual holidays, about $3,248 on eating out and takeaway, Can you guess how much they spent on charity, household, per year? What do you think? More than that. A little bit more than $100. $222. $220. We spend more on our pets than on giving to people in need. That was staggering, confronting. And when we see Jesus' passion for the oppressed, we ought all to fear his judgment in that sense. And rightly so, can I say. So how ought to we respond in light of all of this? Some qualifications, some concluding thoughts. The first one is that Jesus calls us to accept him as a God of love and justice. We, we don't get to choose. We, we don't get to fashion Jesus according to our preference. There's a, there's a really cool, uh, interesting story in Matthew 21. And uh, I want to read it to you. It's Jesus at the temple. And in verse 12, it says this, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The people there were just ripping people off, extorting people. And we see Jesus, the judge, passionate about that. In one other gospel account, it says he made a whip. And he drove people out. That's not the first image we get of Jesus, meek and mild. But the very next verse says, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. The judge and the healer, side by side. And Jesus says, you can't just have the hippie Jesus that just loves everyone, heals everyone, blesses everyone, blesses the children, the animals, Yeah, I I am that. I am the Savior. I am compassionate. I am gracious. I am kind. I am generous. I am that. But I am also righteous and holy and passionate about injustice and oppression. You've got to accept me for all I am. And again, that ought to comfort us that the one that's been entrusted judgment is the compassionate, generous, loving Jesus that walked with us, became human that first Christmas, was born as a baby and experienced all of our pain and suffering. That should comfort us that Jesus knows us. He gets us. And we're told that in the book of Hebrews over and over again, that he's a faithful high priest who empathizes. He understands. He gets our failings and our weaknesses. and our He understands. That ought to comfort us that the one entrusted with judgment is that Jesus. But it should also trouble us because that same Jesus was the one who was the harshest against religious hypocrites who railed against people who were taking advantage of others, who were oppressing 
others. It's the same Jesus. And you read Matthew 23, where Jesus repeatedly condemns the religious elite for their hypocrisy and for their oppression. And that happens two chapters after this instance where he pronounces judgment, woe upon woe upon woe, on the religious elite for their hypocrisy and their oppression. Jesus offers us his whole self. Will we accept him as he reveals himself? The second response is that Jesus calls us to love God first, then our neighbor. See, when you read Matthew 25 in isolation, you could fall into the trap of thinking, oh, well, I know the way to avoid God's judgment is to do charity, is to feed the hungry and to feed, the, you know, give water to the thirsty and visit those in jail and, you know, visit people in hospitals. That's, that's the way out of judgment. But when you read Jesus' statement in Matthew 25 in the broader context of his teaching, in Matthew 22, he makes it very, very clear. Love God first. Love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Then love your neighbor. You see, Jesus would condemn the religious hypocrite the same way he would condemn the charitable atheist. See, it's not enough just to do good deeds because the first and the greatest commandment is to honor God. There's no point in caring for your neighbor and ignoring the Creator just as you would be culpable if you say you love God and you're not caring of your neighbor. Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. You see, Jesus' assumption in Matthew 25 is that those who've experienced the benevolence, the grace, the forgiveness, the charity of God will overflow with charity to others. And so when you don't, even though you profess Christ, he would say there's something very wrong about that. The two are connected. John Dixon, in his book, he, he makes this statement, which I thought was really helpful. The life of love reveals those who have known the love of God. One is not saved by such a life, but such a life marks those who are saved. Love God first, then love your neighbor. Thirdly, Jesus expects us to... Receive him, worship him, acknowledge him, not just as our judge, but also as the justifier. This is profound. This is so powerful. The one entrusted with judgment is the same one that pays the penalty for our rebellion and our sin and, and, and all our human frailties and deficiencies, all our rebellion, all our violations, all our broken laws. He's the same one that pays the price, that offers us freedom. See, salvation in a, from a Christian worldview is not found in doing lots of charity, in doing good we, uh, works to earn God's favor and forgiveness. No, it's, it's accomplished through the work of the justifier. It's like if you're in a courtroom and you've been dragged in and you're, you're guilty as for every charge that's before you and the judge gives you this massive, massive penalty, one that there's no way you can afford, absolutely no way, and you're doomed for an eternity in prison, as it were. 
And then the judge does the most remarkable thing. And he steps out of his box and he comes down and he puts himself in your place and pays the price by going and sentencing himself for your crime. That's what Jesus does. So what exactly bothers us about this idea of Jesus being the judge? Think about that. Because this one that, that we feel nervous about standing before, anxious about standing before, in Romans 3 we're assured that he was both just and the justifier. He, he has paid for every wrong because he took it on himself and therefore he can extend forgiveness and grace to each of us freely. Freely. Because the legal transaction is complete. The debt has been paid by himself. This is our judge. This is the one we will stand before. Is it any wonder that the Bible says, when we know this, when we have trusted in our judge and our justifier, when we've received him and accepted him, we don't need to fear the wrath of God. We don't need to fear the judgment of God. We don't need to stand before him quivering, wondering if we're going to be struck down because the debt is settled. And so in 1 John 4, the writer can say, perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. But there is no more punishment because the judge has borne it all himself. So I want to ask you this Christmas, would you reconsider your perception of Jesus? Luke, can you jump up, Luke? Would you allow yourself to enlarge your view of Jesus? And even though the idea of Jesus being a judge is confronting and challenging, I hope that having a fuller understanding of what that means will draw you to him not repel you from him. And I trust that you will continue to seek this Jesus who loves and is compassionate, who is generous with his mercy and forgiveness and has paid for your crimes so that you would not have to fear the judgment seat of God. And you can stand before him with full assurance and confidence because you've been declared righteous, innocent, free. And for those of us who are already followers of Jesus, I, I pray and trust that this idea of Jesus' passion for people will stir our hearts to reconsider what we do with our money, with our resources, with all that He has entrusted us. Because we will be held accountable. Because Jesus is passionate about people. What can you do differently this Christmas? How can you, who have received so much grace and generosity and charity, do to reflect the heart of your Father, the heart of Jesus in your life? And not just this Christmas, but every day. Like Jesus said, will you be merciful just like your heavenly Father is merciful? Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and just take a moment to let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. We worship you, Jesus.